Did you know that biblically speaking, wisdom is personified? In other words, the authors of scripture don't talk about wisdom as an it, but as a she. And yes, I said she, because the vast majority of times in the scripture, when this concept of wisdom is personified, she is personified as female. So the very first thing I want you to learn today about wisdom is simply this, women are smarter than men. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's what the authors of scripture meant to do when, when wisdom was personified as female, but it is really good advice for husbands out there. Women are just smarter than men. Ladies, please don't nudge your spouse. <laughs> today we are talking about wisdom and we're gonna learn hopefully a lot more than that statement that I just made about the biblical nature of wisdom. And so as we do that, I would invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's about, I don't know, 80% of the way even through your Bible. It's after the four Gospels, after Acts, and after Romans. And it's a letter that uh, the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that he had planted. He had planted that church and kind of got him up and going and then left to continue his missionary journeys. And he's writing back to this church in the city of Corinth that's really struggling with some things. Now, the city of Corinth was struggling because they were a very materialistic city, a very hypersexualized city a very wealthy city. In fact, Corinth was a port city where trade would happen all of the time. So people were very successful in terms of the world, world's eyes, very wealthy. In fact, there was a temple there to a goddess with over a thousand temple prostitutes where people would go and have sex with the prostitute in order to worship this goddess. I mean, it was really lots of debauchery going on there. And the church in Corinth was struggling with a couple things. They were struggling with those uh, who were followers of Jesus who were getting pulled back into that world. And then they were also struggling to respond as a church to those who are getting pulled back into that world. Because there was some that, that would say, we'll give them license to do whatever they want. They can just behave however they want. And then there are some that said, we need to be very, very legalistic and adopt the Old Testament law and make sure dietary restrictions are in place. And there's just lots of difficulty in Corinth going on, especially regarding this response to culture. So Paul writes them a letter. That's what you would have done back then. You couldn't go visit them in person necessarily or drop them an email or send them a tweet. He writes them a letter and he begins to talk about wisdom. And he makes these two very interesting statements in kind of the first major pericope uh, following the introduction of the letter. So the pericope is just a section. So what you have here is an introduction, some introductory comments, and then he kind of launches into this discussion of wisdom. And he makes two very, very interesting comments, and they show up in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 on the second half of verse 24. So if you have your Bibles, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the second half of verse 24, Paul says, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. 
Now skip down to verse 30. It says, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God. I don't know if you picked up on the peculiarities of Paul's statements here, but listen to what he's saying. He's saying that Jesus is God's wisdom, that Jesus became God's wisdom. He is God's wisdom incarnate, not that he knows the wisdom of God, not that he acts out the wisdom of God, but he incarnates, embodies the wisdom of God. And in those two verses, we really have the key to unlock what's going on around those verses in terms of what Paul is saying about wisdom. Now, let's endeavor to understand what Paul means by the word wisdom. Uh, The Webster's uh, Dictionary defines wisdom as knowledge and the capacity to make due use of it knowledge and the capacity to make due use of it. Uh, Right on the other side of this camera is a friend of mine named Matt. He's got some really great videography knowledge, and he's making due use of that knowledge right now in putting this video together. And I've heard a lot of preachers use a definition of wisdom in this way, that wisdom is knowledge applied. You can know things in your head, but wisdom is putting them to use. But I want to push back on that definition of wisdom just a little bit today, because when Paul talks about Jesus incarnating wisdom, do we really think that Paul is saying Jesus is knowledge applied? That that seems a little curious. That seems a little bit of an odd thing to say. And really, that's not the Old Testament understanding of wisdom. And so what we need to do is we need to rewind back to the Old Testament because Paul was an Old Testament guy. Remember, in one of his letters to the churches, Paul reminds them not just that he's Jewish, but he has all of the pedigree, tribe of Benjamin, a Pharisee, adherence to the Old Testament law. He had studied under the best rabbis. I mean, he was an Old Testament guy. So when he thought of this word wisdom, he did not think of Webster's Dictionary. (laughs) He thought of the Old Testament. And so here is the definition of wisdom that I want to submit to you today that is going to help us understand what Paul is talking about here when he says that Jesus incarnates wisdom. And and I want to walk you through where we see that in the Old Testament. So if you're jotting down notes, it's going to come up here on the screen as well. Wisdom is a worldview based on God's values. Wisdom is not knowledge applied necessarily, though sometimes it is. But more broadly speaking, wisdom is a worldview based on God's values. Now, let's unpack that definition just a little bit, and then we'll come back to it momentarily. The Old Testament word for wisdom is chokmah, and there's a lot of authors who have talked about this, but a guy named D.M. Welton uh, wrote an article in 1896, and I'm about to quote it, obscure as it is, because I think it's very instructive. He says, In the more special signification of the word, that is chokmah, or the Old Testament word for wisdom, it denotes wisdom 
with a strong ethical quality as rooting itself in the fear of the Lord and applying the truths of divine revelation to the various relations and circumstances of life. Wisdom in a word as inclusive of all virtue. Okay, so what uh, Welton is arguing for, and I'll show you here in the scripture, is that wisdom isn't just about your knowledge brought to bear in a particular situation. Rather, wisdom is a worldview based on God's values. It's inclusive of virtue. It applies the truths of divine revelation. This is revealed really in Deuteronomy as God begins to deliver the law to the nation of Israel. Remember where we've left our nation of Israel. They have left 430 years of slavery. They have moved toward the promised land. Brandon last week did such a great job talking to us about uh, God's permanent home of the temple in the promised land. But prior to their entry into the promised land, God gives to them a law. He gives to them a law. And that law is recorded in a couple of different places, not the least of which is Deuteronomy chapter 6. And listen to what God says about his law in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 3. It says, Hear therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Okay, first thing we learn about God's wisdom is that he is helping the nation of Israel understand how they are to behave and interact with one another such that it will go well with you. That's the first thing. Second thing, look at Deuteronomy 6 verse 20. It's up here on the screen. God says, when your son asks you in time to come, What's the meaning of the testimonies and statutes and rules that the Lord God has commanded you? What do what all these laws, oh, 600 or whatever, what do they mean? Verse 21, then you shall say to your sons, listen, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt. And the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Do you see how when God begins to talk about the wisdom that he imparts to the nation of Israel, he doesn't begin with rules and regulations. Rather, he begins with a story of redemption. And in verse 24, the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are his this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all the commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. Now, I just point out those three quick verses because that's how God sets up what follows. And what follows is his wisdom, his laws, his rules for living. And listen, they are contextualized within the redemption story for Israel, number one. And number two, God says, this is how you live well, right? These aren't arbitrary rules and regulations, but this is how you survive as a culture. Th these are the stipulations for total human flourishing. These aren't just things I pulled out of my ear. It isn't even just a moral code. Rather, it's a worldview based on God's values, and what follows in Deuteronomy chapter 6 
is stuff like this. Give everybody a fair trial when they commit a crime. And here's how you do that. Allow people to own property. Protect the vulnerable and poor and needy in your society. Give everyone, regardless of background, equal opportunity. I mean, we like to point to things like don't wear a cotton poly blend and don't boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And they seem a little odd and obscure. And there are a couple of those that we need to understand in context. But listen, by and large, what follows is the wisdom of God related to interacting with him and interacting with one another. And in his book, uh, Christopher J.H. Wright, his book called Knowing Jesus Through the Old Testament that we've quoted here in our series multiple times, he, he remarks, and I'm paraphrasing here, that these laws that God gives his people, his wisdom are the types of things that safe, democratic, livable countries pat themselves on the back for in modernity, right? Like Canada or other free countries across the world, uh, we pat ourselves on the back because we have a fair, at least to some extent, justice system, that we have opportunities for the poor and we care for them to the best of our ability. And in other countries, they are oppressed. In other countries where there's a tyrant or a dictator, those things aren't true. And when those countries are liberated, what's the very first things that they install? Well, they install a justice system. They install property ownership for people. They install uh, systems that help care for the poor and aging and sick and vulnerable. They do all those things. And God's looking at us going, that was not your idea. That's been my wisdom for thousands of years. See, this is God's worldview based on God's values. This is his wisdom. In fact, there are five books of the Bible that are commonly referred to as wisdom literature, the wisdom literature. I want to take a look at four of them just real quickly, and I'm going to pull one verse out of each. I know that feels a little out of context, but as we will see, these verses represent what each of these wisdom books think about wisdom in general. Job chapter 12, verse 12. Wisdom is with the aged, 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 aged. Either way, wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Now, what is Job saying? Is he saying that those who are aging or older have more knowledge to apply in practical situations? Perhaps that's true, but that's not what he's saying. What he's saying is those who have grown older in the Lord have adopted his worldview based on his values. Thus, they are wise. Listen to what Psalm 3730, another, one of the wisdom literature books in the Bible says. Uh, Psalm 3730, the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom and his tongue speaks justice. Now check this out. The psalmist is not saying smart people who can apply their knowledge. People who have a knowledge base who can apply it in certain circumstances, knowledge applied, those people are wise. No, 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 no. The psalmist is saying the mouth of the righteous utters wisdom. 
You see, what the psalmist is saying is, for those who have a pure heart, for those who are following after God, for those who are adopting His worldview, those are the wise. See, wisdom has far more to do, like D.M. Welton said, with virtue and with a worldview based on God's values. Proverbs 8, the third book we're going to talk about that, um, that is one of the wisdom literature books in the Bible. Proverbs 8, verse 12. Uh, wisdom is personified here, so wisdom is speaking. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. See, wisdom, again, is more about character. And, and what follows there are verses in Proverbs about things like hard work, telling the truth, listening to counsel, fiscal responsibility. Uh, D.M. Welton actually in that same article argues that Proverbs' central principle is this, goodness is wisdom. Hmm. Uh, finally, uh, we'll reference Ecclesiastes, four of five books now. Now, if you don't know Ecclesiastes, a man named Solomon went to pursue kind of the nth degree of everything in life. And he comes to this conclusion at the end of Ecclesiastes. And this is how the book of Ecclesiastes concludes. In verse 9, Solomon tells us he's talking about wisdom. And this is what he has to say about wisdom. After all his searching, here it is, verse 13, chapter 12. The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of men. The fifth book that provides uh, insight into wisdom in the Old Testament is a book called Song of Solomon. I'll let you read that on your own and figure out what they're talking about in there. Uh, D.M. Welton, again, in that very same article says this, it might be said that Job teaches man how to suffer well, the Psalms how to pray well, Proverbs how to act well, Ecclesiastes, how to enjoy well, and the Song of Songs, how to love well. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So in order to live well, we adopt wisdom. And what is wisdom but a worldview based on God's values? It is not knowledge applied. It's a worldview based on God's values. Biblically speaking, from an Old Testament perspective, those who are wise have adopted a worldview based on God's values. And what are his values? He values individual lives. Everybody's somebody. He values grace and compassion. He values fair treatment. He, he values uh, standing up against injustice and the oppression of the poor. And if you look through not just the law in Deuteronomy and in Exodus, and not just the wisdom literature, but all through the Old Testament, God is not giving us five keys to a successful marriage or eight tips for financial security or three great ways to manage your time well. No, 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 no. He's offering a comprehensive view of the world that's based on his character and values. And Paul comes along and he says, Christ has embodied that wisdom. Now, before we get there, and, and I got a little bit ahead of myself, but that's okay. 
I want to talk to you real quickly about why this matters now. And here's why it matters. Because the modern mind looks to things like reason or science or intuition or experience in order to derive wisdom. And yes, those things can offer us the ability to apply knowledge. We can gain knowledge from science, experience, intuition, and reason. And we can also determine how to apply that knowledge. What we cannot do is derive a metric by which the value of that applied knowledge is measured. Let me say that again. Reason, science, intuition, and experience can offer us applied knowledge, but they cannot offer us a metric by which that applied knowledge is measured. So let me tell you a story maybe to help us understand that. Uh, in, in his book called Making Sense of God, uh, Tim Keller tells a story about this concept called eugenics. Eugenics was a concept that was brought to bear in the early 20th century, and eugenics taught that we should sterilize or kill those classes of people who weakened the human race by spreading, and I quote, disease, immorality, and crime to all parts of the country. That's really what eugenics taught. They, it taught that we should sterilize or kill in order to quote unquote, purify the human race and not spread disease, immorality, and crime to all parts of the country. So eugenics began to endeavor how to manipulate DNA and how to manipulate and, and read kind of genetic codes, et cetera, et cetera, in order to decrease the population of the human race and increase the quote unquote, quality of the human race. This was not an abnormal uh, practice or even an abnormal notion in the early 20th century. And listen to what Tim Keller writes about eugenics. He says, it was perfectly logic logical to conclude that it would be more socially and economically cost-effective if those genetically prone to non-productive lives did not pass on their genetic code. However, the death camps aroused the moral intuition that eugenics, while perhaps scientifically efficient, is evil. Yet if you believe that that is, you must find your support for your conviction in some source beyond science and the strictly rational cost-benefit analysis of practical reason. Where can you look for this support? The ideals of freedom, of conscience, Human rights and democracy are the direct legacy of the Judaic ethic of justice and the Christian ethic of love. To this day, there is no alternative to it. You see, science had knowledge that was applied, but a faith system or a worldview or wisdom derived from the Old Testament now was applied to that science or practical knowledge or practical application of knowledge, and it was determined that that was evil or immoral. See, it's the wisdom that measures the goodness of or virtue of or productivity of or morality of our 
practical knowledge applied. I was uh, like 18 years old on a mission trip one time. I was in Los Angeles serving at uh, some homeless missions and I was staying at a local university there. And uh, one night uh, I watched out on the track, there was an individual uh, who looked like he was training for the long jump. And I was right, it was somebody who was training for the long jump. So I just went out to watch him for a little while. This individual's name is Mike Powell. You might remember him because he is the current, even as long ago as 21 years ago or whenever he said it, but still is the current world record holder for the long jump. And Mike Powell was just doing his steps that day and just getting his rhythm and stretching his legs and his trainer was there. And so I said, would, would you just jump one time for me? I'd love to be this up close. I'd love to see it live. I'd love to see you jump. And he kind of shrugged and said, oh, shucks, sure, I'll jump. And let me tell you something, man, this guy, he jumps like the length of a school bus. I mean, it's unbelievable. Now, here's the thing, whether it's Mike Powell or Carl Lewis or me <laughs> or any other long jumper or any other short jumper like yours truly, it doesn't matter the practical knowledge that we apply. It doesn't matter what we know. It doesn't matter what we can do unless, unless it's measured, unless it's measured. Because then you know Mike Powell jumps the furthest. And guys like Carl Lewis maybe jump close and guys like me can't even see where they landed from where I'm at. It's the same thing when it comes to knowledge applied. You have to measure it. You have to say, how good is this for the world around me? How positive is this for the world around me? And what the Bible brings to bear is a metric, a measuring stick to say, here is where goodness is. Here is wisdom for interacting with the people around you. Now watch this. God doesn't stop there. He doesn't just offer a worldview based on his values of grace, mercy, compassion, and love and justice. He doesn't stop there. He says in 1 Corinthians, like we just read, that Jesus became wisdom. The Word became flesh, John says. Jesus became wisdom. Jesus took this Old Testament notion of a worldview based on God's values, and for 33 years, he embodied it. Jesus is not the embodiment of practical application of knowledge. That's just silly. Rather, Jesus became wisdom in that he embodied God's worldview based on God's values. He was full of grace and truth. He always had time for a conversation. He cared for the poor, the children, and the widows in society. He railed against the hypocritical religiosity of his day. He spoke out against injustice, flipped over tables in the temple, just like Brandon talked about last week, and so on and so on. This is not the embodiment of applied knowledge. It's the embodiment of a worldview, a kingdom worldview, a new way to live. 
In fact, Jesus, in his first and most famous sermon called the Sermon on the Mount, he takes the wisdom of God as given to him through the Old Testament, both the law and those and the wisdom literature and the prophets, all that worldview that's presented there, and he takes it one step further and he says, look, it's not just about your behavior. It's also about your heart. He says this new kingdom wisdom should take hold of you to your very core so it's not simply perfunctory and performance-oriented, but so that it completely transforms the way you see the world. Jesus says this radical stuff that completely turns the world worldview on its head. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, those who hunger and thirst. Blessed are the merciful and the pure in heart and the peacemakers. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. He says this is the wisdom of God. His worldview based on his values. Now, when you experience Jesus and when you adopt that worldview, you become a little like Neo from the Matrix. I know that's a little bit of an odd, an odd reference, but I think it's true. I mean, if you remember uh, Neo in the Matrix, when he kind of takes the pill, he sees the world for what it really is. And it's difficult, and it's radically changed, and it's completely turned on its head. And he doesn't completely understand it. And he watches all these people continue to live out a particular set of values that are meaningless, that are nothing, that get them nowhere. And yet now, he's living out a different set of values. Now, if I was casting a movie, I would not ask Keanu Reeves to play Jesus. That's not what I'm suggesting. What I'm suggesting is when we have a true conversion experience and Jesus transforms our hearts and regenerates us, what happens is we see the world for what it really is. We see eternity for what it really is. Though in a mirror dimly, though we're growing all the time, we are given wisdom because we adopt a worldview based on God's values. This is what it means that Jesus embodies, has become wisdom. So here's what I want to do. I want to go back to that text in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And I want us, now that we understand an Old Testament concept of chokmah, wisdom, and how Jesus has embodied that and what it might mean for us, Paul gives specific instructions. We're going to learn from them real quick, and then we're, we'll apply them a little bit, and we'll be done. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but for us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Of course, an upside-down world where the meek and the poor in spirit and the pure in heart and the peacemakers are happy and blessed, of course that looks like folly and foolishness to the world. Verse 20, where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach, to save those who believe. For Jews demanded signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and Christ the wisdom of God. The very first thing that Paul is saying here is this group of people, Jews, sought a sign. If you know anything about the Scriptures, you know that the Jews were waiting on a sign to tell them that the Messiah had come. Greeks were all about Sophia. You may have heard that before. That's the Greek word for wisdom. Paul comes along and says, we're not giving you wisdom uh, regarding Sophia and answers about what you're looking for there. We're not even giving you a sign. Here's what we're doing. We are preaching Christ crucified. That would be a stumbling block both to Jews and Gentiles. Why? Because Christ preached a kingdom that was turned upside down. God died. Of course, it doesn't make sense to the world around us. It's an upside down kingdom. But the very first thing we learn here is, is that wisdom really is courageous truth. Wisdom is courageous truth. Paul is saying, this group of people, I know you want to hear about this, but what you need is Christ crucified. This group of people, Greeks, I know you want to hear about this, but what you really need is Christ crucified. And he speaks a courageous truth, a truth that wouldn't tickle anybody's ear, a truth that they wouldn't want to have known, a truth they weren't seeking. But he preaches it anyway, that God died for your sake and for mine. And men and women, that, that's where we need to be as well. When we adopt a worldview based on God's values, then we can speak that courageous truth just as Paul did. Keep going, verse 25. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. I love that. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You know, he's saying to the church in Corinth, most of you didn't have much before you came to Christ. I mean, we know in that early church in the city of Corinth, there were some folks who were wealthy and of status or whatever, but the vast majority were poor. They were living day to day, paycheck to paycheck. They were struggling to make ends meet. They had no status. They had no authority. They had no prestige, no title. And Paul comes along and he says, yes, and for that very reason, God called you so that the wisdom of the world, the worldview of the world would be made into foolishness. See, God has called by his grace and his grace alone. Nobody is smart enough, wise enough, uh, has enough knowledge applied, practical wisdom in order to enter the kingdom of God. And the great news is even if you have none, God comes after you in order to shame the strong and make what is weak or what is strong in the world weak. So the second thing we learn is that wisdom is courageous grace. The worldview of God, based on God's values, causes him to show courageous grace. Grace that invites the lowly, the humble, even those who are far from God, 
to him, those who are not powerful, those who are not of noble birth, those who are low and despised in the world. God shows his extravagant grace because his worldview is based on his values, values like grace. And now as his people, our call, our charge is to show courageous grace. And we'll conclude here in Because of him, verse 30, because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. It's great because Paul doesn't say stop boasting. He says just boast in the right thing. Because you are not righteous in and of yourself, you are not wise in and of yourself, you have not been sanctified and redeemed because of things you have done. Rather, Christ Jesus became wisdom. He embodied a worldview based on God's value. He became righteousness, He became sanctification, and He became redemption for you. The wisdom of God boasts in the Lord and only in the Lord. Those who have have adopted a worldview based on God's values boast in the Lord. Wisdom boasts in the Lord. So listen, if I were to adopt an upside-down kingdom, if I were to adopt this worldview based on God's values and begin to show courageous grace and courageous truth and boast in the Lord. If I were to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, not just Jesus the wise, but Jesus the very embodiment of wisdom and begin to serve and be meek and humble in spirit, how might that change the world around me? Well, I wouldn't hesitate to wear a mask in public. in order to protect others. It's just funny to me how we've kind of politicized this deal and there are people that are digging their heels in and saying, I'm not gonna wear a mask. I don't know, I guess that's up to you, but quite frankly, I wanna show deference to those in our society that are vulnerable, to those who are maybe more susceptible because someone who's adopted a worldview based on God's values, is happy to put their comfort aside just for a moment. Believe me, I live in one of the greatest cities in the world. What I believe is the greatest city in the world, Uxbridge, Ontario. <laughs> I'm, uh, I, I'm doing fine. We, we are happy. We are well-fed. We are among the richest people in the world and one of the world's most livable cities. A mask is a temporary, uncomfortable situation. And for Christians to dig our heels in and say, I'm not going to do that, just seems odd to me. Because if we adopt a worldview based on God's values, we'd be happy to defer to others when and where we can. Number two, I think the way we communicate with one another would shift radically if we adopted a worldview based on God's values. Because God values listening. God values grace towards others and compassion. I think the way we speak to one another would change. I once heard somebody say that wisdom is saying something so that someone else could hear it. 
You see, because Jesus was always other-centered. The wisdom of God is not self-centered, but other-centered. And so when he spoke to people, he chose to phrase those things in a way that made the most sense to them. So often, and not just in personal conversation, but on Twitter and on Facebook or whatever, we're just trying to get our opinions out there in the way that we want to say it and the way we mean it, rather than having an open and honest conversation and sharing wisdom of God, the worldview of God, when and where we can. Our world would be much different if in our communication we adopted God's worldview. And finally, when it comes to divine assurance, divine assurance. And and I use that word on purpose, not self-assurance, because we're not assured in and of ourselves. Rather, we're assured because God has given us His divine assurance. We can be settled in who we are. We don't have to scramble for power or prestige or position in the world. Why? Look back at the verse, verse 30. Because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. And he's talking about Jesus now. He became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. He became those things and now has imparted to us those things. A new worldview based on God's values. Uh, Righteousness, that's right standing before God. Redemption, we're purchased by His blood. We belong to Him. Next next verse says, so that it is written, let one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Someone who boasts is someone who is confident. But those who boast in themselves, they will be undercut. Or those who boast because of what others think, think of them, they will be undercut. In fact, one of the greatest theologians of all time, a young woman named Taylor Swift, and I love T. Swift, once said this, when you're living for the joy of strangers, one bad thing can make everything crumble. And if you've seen the Taylor Swift uh, documentary on Netflix, you know that's what happened to her. But see, what God offers to us is a life that's not based on self-assurance or others' assurance. Rather, it's based on divine assurance. He gives us a new worldview based on His values. And then when we become assured in and of ourselves, not because of ourselves or because of others, but because of what God has done for us, we begin to live out this new worldview based on new kingdom values. This is wisdom. This is how the wise man or woman lives, based on a new worldview, based on God's values.